heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. This is our fifth stop on our road trip to Idaho, and I got the Martin Fugition with me on the couch in the hot seat. And, you know, for as much as we've talked and much as we've hung out and worked together and whatever, I have no idea what your backstory is. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Heidi. So I grew up actually at far into the valley over here. So I was a farm kid out in uh, rural eastern Oregon. And I spent my whole childhood basically out playing on the farm and playing around in the Owyhee Mountains out to the south here. And uh, went to College of Idaho right down the road here, literally a couple blocks away, uh, did a business degree there, and then uh, went to farming. And I farmed for about six years, on uh, three of which I farmed on my own, and uh, took over the family farm. It was a great experience. Uh, my dad had you know, farmed for many years, and he got a job working in town. And uh, he just asked me when I was on my way to law school, would you like to take a year off and run the farm? And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds like a you know, nice break. I ended up never going back. So I farmed for a few years. And while I was farming, I ended up going on a trip with the folks from Bittner Vineyards. And we were down building houses in Tijuana. And when I came back, they said, you should really look at the wine business. And I said, I'm not looking at the wine business. Like, I'm, I'm, there's, yeah, I'm farming. Like, no. And then I started looking into it, and I got a job working on weekends for Koenig Vineyards, uh, working in the tasting room. And I worked for them for about three years in the tasting room every weekend. Just fell in love with the wine business. From there, um, took about a year off, and then missed the business and came back and started working in the production side and doing vineyard management. And it was, you know, a good time to get out of farming, I think. You know, it was one of those things where we needed to either, as a farm, get really, really big or get out. It was nice to still be involved in farming and still be involved in that agricultural cycle. That's what really drew me back to it. It's still, you know, farming at its heart, but it's a different kind of farming. And that's what's fun for me anyway. So, yeah, I I really, you know, lucked into a circumstance where I could totally use my farming background, my business school background, and, uh, you know, get to do something that's a little bit artsy and creative at the same time, which I really enjoy. That's interesting. And we've actually heard that a couple times, you know, with the farming that you either needed to get really big or you needed to stay small to make things make sense financially and on the business sense. And so, What were the crops that you were growing with your family? Oh, we were doing sugar beets, onions, occasionally potatoes, beans, and a lot of specialty seeds. So we did a lot of things like onion seed and flower seeds and things like that. And that was a great niche market. You know, it was a really interesting thing to do. And a lot of like hybrid sweet corn or uh, inbred sweet corn varieties that, you know, we would do just little half acre plots of this, that, and the other. And that was a great business to be in. It was really you know, it was interesting to see the variety of crops we could do here too. And that was what was really interesting for me in a lot of ways is that we got so much diversity and we did a lot with alfalfa seed too. You know, we had alfalfa seed that was shipped all over the place and onions as well. And yeah, it was it was a really, really fun business to be part of. But, you know, the nature of the market changed out here a lot. And the farm that 
ended up buying us out, bought our farm and the five neighboring farms. Oh, geez. So, you know, it was really like if you were going to continue to operate out in that area, you really needed to be a much bigger operation. And we were doing between two and 400 acres a year, depending on what we were doing each year. And, you know, that was a nice size for the size of family we were. But, you know, if you're going to be bigger than that, it was going to become a much different operation and a much different way of doing things. And I like the viticulture aspect because, you know, I at one point was managing 250 acres of vineyards, but now I manage like 13. And that's a nice size because it's more boutique and you can be a lot more hands-on. And I, I actually, you know, like that about it that, I can I spend a lot of time just focusing on a very narrow band of stuff and and trying to do the best job we can on a smaller scale. And growing up, I spent a ton of time, you know, in the FFA and 4H and a lot of ag classes. And everybody always talked about vertical integration. That was the big buzzword during that time frame when I was growing up, that you needed to not just be growing a commodity crop. You needed to be packing that crop and selling that crop directly to consumers. And you know, in the back of my mind, it was winemaking is exactly that, that we're taking a product that basically bringing from the ground up and literally handing that product directly to consumers. And it was drilled into me from a young age that that's what you need to do in order to take advantage of the new agritourism market, the new world of agriculture. And it was a natural fit in many ways. Huh. I'm not, I don't think I've heard that term. And so it's interesting that you know, I went through the 4-H and FFA programs, and granted, I think I'm older than you, but I didn't, you know, never really have heard that term, and even as an adult, have not really heard that. So it's interesting that that was so like ingrained into you to where <clears throat> it's kind of stuck. And I think when you own a vineyard and you're doing the winemaking, and then you're actually packaging it and selling it directly to consumer, I mean, what a perfect trifecta that you have that. Oh, absolutely, and it is endlessly diverse. I mean, there are no two days that are ever alike for us. I like that because it's really challenging and that we get to see every aspect of the business and we're constantly challenged to evolve and diversify and, you know, try and make our business move forward and adapt to the changing consumer market too, which I find super fun. I mean, a a big part of what I was interested in when I was in college was the idea of, you know, how do you market things correctly and how do you, you know, figure out where the market is going. And I spend a ton of time at that now and thinking about, you know, where is the market going to go in the future for wine? And Idaho is particularly interesting that way because it's a state that's rapidly evolving. You know, we have people moving in from all over the country and a lot of people moving in from very well-established wine regions and they have different expectations for wine than what our core consumer group used to have. It was very much driven by, you know, sweet wine drinkers when I first started in the business. You know, I remember carrying cases of ice wine out of the tasting room for people on the regular. Like, and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll open a bottle of this on a Tuesday and, you know, just drink it down. And I was like, wow, that's a, you know, amazing to me that you can open a bottle of ice wine on a Tuesday in the middle of the summer, which I always thought of as more of a, you know, like special occasion sort of wine, and B, that, you know, that was the market. And now it is entirely shifted on us. We can't make enough red wine. We really cannot make enough red wine here in Idaho. And I think some of that is, you know, our existing consumer base is kind of evolved. And I think some of that is that 
the people that are moving in have a really different palette. And I think that that's really fun for me to see how do we adapt to that and how do we change, you know, our future as a winery in order to, you know, meet the needs and desires of those consumers that are moving in and, and the ones that have, you know, been here for many years. So It's interesting because, I mean, I know the Boise area has had a lot of influx specifically from California because, sure. you know, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's Boise is an amazing place and a lot of them have that Napa palette. You know, sure. with the big reds and also the bigger price tags. Somebody had mentioned that yesterday that, you know, they would have never dreamt of selling a $50 bottle of wine. And now it's kind of normal place that people kind of think that they're actually getting a bargain a lot of the time. Uh, July 4th was my 19th anniversary in the Idaho wine business. And uh, it's funny to me to see how much things have changed that way. And, you know, for me, it's I think about people moving here, and when I was taking that year off, I was deciding, you know, kind of towards the end of that year that I wanted to come back to the wine business. I traveled all over the West Coast, you know, I did California, clear up into British Columbia. I even went as far uh, back east as like North and South Dakota and kind of traveled around trying to decide where I wanted to end up. And I totally see why people move here, you know, even traveling through all the Western states and down to Colorado and Arizona. I came back and I was like, yeah, this is absolutely where I want to live. And this is absolutely where I want to start my business. It was a natural fit. So I totally see why people want to come here. At the same time, yeah, like having seen that, you know, all those different wine regions and, you know, having the opportunity to taste wines in all those places, I can also see why people gravitate towards, you know, those bigger reds. And, uh, and our price points, you know, when I first started, 10 and $15 felt like a lot of money for a bottle of wine. And now it's like, oh no, you know, like if you hand somebody a 10 and $15 bottle, they're like, really? Like, what's wrong with it? What's wrong? Yeah, exactly. You know, that's a great question. And now it's like, oh, well, you know, our price points have to evolve with that too. But for me, like, and Teresa as well, you know, Teresa has been my partner in crime and this whole thing started from the very beginning. We want our wines to be accessible. Like, that's a huge thing for us. Like, we want people that have never been in a tasting room before, have never bought a bottle of wine from an actual winery. You know, they might go down and buy a bottle of wine at Albertsons or whatever. But they are always intimidated to come into the wineries. We want them to come in and A, feel welcome. B, feel like they can actually buy a bottle of wine. And C, find something that they like. And I think for us, that is really at the core of who we are as a winery and what, and our price points were trying to reflect that too, which is definitely a challenge, you know. It's, I mean, you have to cover your cost and it'd be nice to make a little money, you know, to actually live <laughs> oh, in a, live and evolve this. a little bit, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's two parts to that, I guess, comment to what you just said or question is the biggest thing for me and was my adversity, you know, with you know, getting into wine before I did was the tasting room and how intimidating it was to walk into a tasting room that is, and it's, it's beautiful when it like has beautiful furnishings and whatever, but sometimes it's overwhelming when you walk into a place. And so Absolutely. having a place like yours, cause we went in yesterday, bought wine and met your staff and um, got the tour. 
but it was so welcoming when you walked in and Mm -hmm. it was um, your barrel room, by the way, that I have not seen that since it's done and it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You did a great job in there. You and whoever else was that that Teresa? That was Teresa. Okay, Teresa. It was very much Teresa. Huge kudos for that because it's beautiful in there. I was. Yeah, I walked in there. I'm like, whoa, this was not like this when I walked in a couple of years ago. <laughs> so it's been a while since I've been in there. Yeah. So, um, But anyways, I mean, that's a huge thing for attracting new clientele, giving people that are a little bit nervous about the whole thing, kind of that little extra shove to come in and experience the experiences. Mm-hmm. Because without the experience and, you know, without kind of that handholding a little bit, some people are just like, nope, didn't do it right, I'm out, yeah, you know, yeah. and then they never return to it again. So they go like me, back to beer, or they go, you know, <laughs> something that's a little bit easier and predictable and not intimidating. But the price points are a big deal. I mean, oh yeah, you need to make them welcome, but if they can't afford a bottle of wine, and a lot of it's mindset. Like for me, it was like, okay, so it's $30 for a bottle of wine, but I can buy a half rack for 18. Oh, absolutely. And I can get more yeah. bang for my buck. Well, yeah. I also get a pretty massive freaking headache and hangover the next day, <laughs> too, if I did that. So it's it's kind of quantifying quality versus, you know, quantity and getting kind of over that stepping stone. And now, like, I don't have a problem spending 20 or 30 bucks for a yeah. bottle of wine or sometimes more, depending on what it is, you know, because I realize what I'm getting and what's in the bottle versus what just got mass produced in the hills of the Rocky Mountains or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's tomato, tomato. It's whatever, you know, toots your horn and what you like. But encouraging somebody to walk into a tasting room when they're not comfortable with it and sitting down and learning mm-hmm. um, from somebody like Annie or somebody like that, it just opens up a whole new world. Well, and, and I've always felt like the deck is stacked against us as an industry in a lot of ways, that we're dealing with wines that have French names or German names, like, you know, one of our big things is Gewürztraminer. You know, we do very small batches of that every year. A lot of people don't even want to try that because they see the name and they don't want to sound silly trying to pronounce it, yeah. you know. So they just skip over it on the list. And there's so many things like that. Gruner, Veltliner, I mean, all those mm-hmm. different varieties. We do Morvedra, you know. And people are intimidated by that. And so we feel like we have to, in a lot of ways, overcompensate as a winery in being welcoming in order to get people to feel comfortable being willing to try those. And we're very, very fortunate. We have a fantastic team on the hospitality side, especially, and that they have gone above and beyond to, A, you know, learn to be great wine educators, to every one of them as a great wine educator, and B, to make people feel welcome every time they come in the tasting room. You know, that's the best feedback I can receive as a winery owner and winemaker is that, hey, I had a great experience at the tasting room. And I remember that from when I first started in the business. It was a great education working in the tasting room. Basically, like back then, it was such a different world that I was working in the tasting room by myself. I mean, now I can't imagine trying to work your tasting room by yourself because there's just so many more people coming in. But people didn't come in necessarily for the wines originally. They came in to try the wines, but it was such a new and up-and-coming region. They weren't familiar with the brands. They weren't familiar with the varieties. They weren't familiar with Idaho wine in general. Mm -hmm. And so when they came in, it was about, oh, hey, I had such a good time last time I came out here that I wanted to come back again. And we always joked that we had the same 200 customers. They just, you know, brought different friends every week, which was probably true. But now it's a much different world out here in a much different market. And it's been fun to see how that's evolved as an industry. But I still think it comes back to that core of 
people want to come out and feel welcome and they want to come out and feel like they can have a great experience and not necessarily break the bank. And we're one of the few wineries that still doesn't charge a tasting fee. And Ooh, okay, people, yeah. you heard that. Yeah. It's free to go taste traditions. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. But make sure and buy a bottle. You know, and, well, and tip your staff well. It's never been an issue, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, we watch those statistics really closely. We're numbers people in a lot of ways. And it's never been an issue that people don't come in and don't buy a bottle of wine. We feel like, you know, if it ever became an issue, we might reevaluate. But to a person, you know, everybody seems to come in. And if they have a great experience, it sets the tone correctly at the beginning of coming mm-hmm. in the tasting room. Too. There's nothing quite like coming in the tasting room and saying, well, how much is it going to cost me when I walk through the door? Yeah. And it's like, no, it's free to come in and taste. And if you find something you like, take it home. And people are immediately put at ease and immediately very much willing to kind of settle in and have a good time. And you're not, you know, setting this expectation right from the beginning that this is an experience that's fraught and stressful and is not going to necessarily gonna lead you to having a good time. And it's contentious in the industry, honestly. Like I, you know, I get a lot of feedback in the industry about that. But for me, it's like, oh well, if everybody's coming and buying wine anyway and they're having a great time, well, mission accomplished, yeah. honestly. For sure. And I th- I do think it's a, a little bit of a rarity to find a place that's not charging the tasting fee. And a lot of times your tasting fees are waived if you buy a bottle and blah, blah, blah. But I totally get it. I mean, there's been several in the Valley that I've seen in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley, that's 250 bucks before you even walk in. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I just don't know. What happens if I don't like your wine? Yeah. I mean, what if it's not my style and my thing, then I'm out 250 or I'm buying wine that I don't want or, you know, whatever. So it is nice, especially from a especially from a newer consumer that's trying to get their feet wet mm-hmm. with the wine industry, it, it, I could see where that is definitely advantageous. Well, and for me, I mean, it might be a little bit of PTSD from mm-hmm. like being in the industry when it was very, very young too. And because, you know, I mean, Idaho is so funny that, you know, the first grapes didn't get planted until like 78, 79. And as an industry, you know, we we're really known as a Riesling and Chardonnay region. And then for us to move towards a big red region and now, you know, towards a region where there's a lot of astute wine consumers, I still remember when people didn't come out. Like, I would go through a whole weekend at the tasting room, you know, back when I first started in the business. And in the middle of January, I would get two people all weekend. Crazy. And which, you know, now Januarys are just about as busy as any other time of the year. But with that being said, I still have this thing in the back of my mind that's like, I want to make sure people keep on coming out. And I want to make sure that, especially because we're different than our neighbors in a lot of ways, that Washington and Oregon are so well-established and so well-known. And it's funny that, you know, Walla Walla really started as an industry about the same time we did here in Idaho. Mm. But they got that critical mass going for them and they, they became a destination. And Idaho is still kind of on the periphery that way, that people say, oh, you know, like Idaho wine, I don't know. You're still known for potatoes. Yeah, you know. Yes. <laughs> I, I just cringe when I think about that. But yeah. like when I, I was in college, I traveled to England and we all took little potato pins with us because mm. it would help to explain where we were from. Sure. And I was like, yeah, that's, you know, still what we're absolutely known for. But with that being said, I think that we've, now started to develop a reputation as a serious wine region. And and every winery I work with is making really good wines, honestly. So that, to me, 
just helps float everybody's boat a little bit higher. Oh, for sure. I think we need to shift gears and talk about wine. Because, oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, because there is there is some great wine. You're making some great wine. There's definitely oh, some great you. wine in the region. and But we definitely need to know what you're doing because you've been in the business for a while mm-hmm. from the beginning for the most part. And you have that farming background. So you kind of have a little bit different of a perspective rather than somebody just walks in and says, hey, I want a, you know a custom crush label and you know let's do this. So let's talk about the wines that you're producing and what we find in the tasting room. So we've got two brands. So we have Fugition, which is our main brand. That's, you know, kind of what we started with. And Fugition focuses on lesser known varieties. So we do things like, you know, Mervedra, Gewürztraminer. We do do some more well-known things like Cabernet and Chardonnay. And, and, you know, Syrah is kind of right in the middle there. And those are kind of our bread and butter is the lesser known varieties. Uh, Petit Verdot, Petit Syrah. And then we also have Free Dog, which is a little bit more of a Northwest regional brand. And it's based on varieties that are more well-known. So, you know, it's a Cab, Merlot. It does have some exceptions. There's things like Albarino in there. But we do 23 wines a year as a wine, as across the two brands. Works out to be just shy of 6,000 cases a year on an average year. So I really enjoy that, first of all, that, you know, as an industry everybody's willing to try and evolve and adapt. And there's new varieties coming in all the time here. I mean, there's such a broad range of things available to us as winemakers. You know, the Alberino is a great example of that. It's a partnership between ourselves and Williamson Vineyard. And we approached Williamson's and said, hey, we want to do Alberino. And we don't have the ground to plant it yet. Would you guys be interested? And they said, oh, yeah, if you're willing to do a long-term contract, we'll absolutely plan it and take the, and share the risk in it. And we said, yeah, let's do that. And so it's been a very collaborative industry that way. And it's given us the opportunities to bring in new varieties. Uh, we just planted Barbera up at the estate vineyard this year. You know, we're playing around with a lot of things to kind of push the limits of what we can do as an industry. And we were established early on with some of the more obscure things like you know, Petit Syrah, well-known in California, not very well-known in Idaho. And uh, that's kind of where we hung our hat. And it's been a fun place to be in so many ways that when you're working with varieties that nobody else is doing or, or very few other people are doing, you get to do a ton of research. And so we get to go around and taste wines from all over the world. Um, you know, the Albarino thing was, you know, coming back to that. We tasted 23 Albarinos to try and find out, you know, what global style is and what, you know, West Coast style is for Albarino. Interesting. It's I bought one of those yesterday, so I don't think I've tried the Albarino, so we'll have to pop that open this weekend and, and try it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a winemaker, we do a lot of small lot stuff, though we make 6,000 cases a year. You know, our average batch size is about 200 cases. That's fun for me because I get to see a lot of different wines. I was told many, many years ago that I don't think as a winemaker you make your best wines until you actually are, you know, doing the whole process from the very beginning to end where you're planting the grapes and you're, you know, managing that vineyard and basically the old cliche about, you know, wine is made in the vineyard. Well, if you're controlling every aspect of it from beginning to end, it gives you a much more of an opportunity to be in the driver's seat that way. And we've been very lucky too in that you know, with my background in vineyard management, I still buy grapes from a lot of vineyards I used to work with. And I also, you know, get to work with a lot of really good vineyards that basically have put us in the driver's seat already and said, hey, what do you guys want to see happen in the vineyard? And that's awesome that way that we have great partnerships with so many great vineyards that way. So 
it's a fun business to be able to play with pretty much every aspect of that. And like today, I brought a bottle of Amatino. That's our red blend that we're best known for. We got uh, top 10 oddest wine brands in the U.S. in oddest? 2017 for that. Did you say oddest? Oh, hottest. 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 Well, we, like... you know, we are pretty odd, but that's a different story, <laughs> you know. But yeah, it's hot. so we're uh, we actually chosen as one of the top 10 hottest wine brands in 2017 for the Amatino. And That's it's exciting. A, it's a wine that is near and dear to my heart because the name was actually a long-term process, but it was actually a name chosen by Teresa and myself uh, based on our screen names from World of Warcraft because we're oh, both geez. gamers. And so, uh, yeah, so that's how we came up with the name for that. That's awesome. And so, yeah, it's and it's a great, uh, fun, like, Syrah, Petite Syrah, Viognier-based blend, which I think Ooh. showcases some of the best things about wine growing here in Idaho. I Yeah, I don't even remember. Um, I had Annie suggest three different things, so I think... I don't even know what I ended up with, but anyways, oh, I know exciting. I had an Albarino, so yeah. it'll be a it'll be a surprise when when I actually get to open it all. But um, mm-hmm. I know you mentioned you had a, a pink, and I looked oh, at that yeah, yesterday. She's yeah. like, it's pretty sweet, and I'm like, oh, that's the one that Martin had told me about because <laughs> I think you said your biggest customers for that were the big burly men of the area. They were the ones that really loved that sweet pink. You know, it's so it's a bubble bath blush. That was, and I I take no credit for the name. That was entirely Teresa and Annie that came up with that. It is a sweet pink blend. And, I mean, we're still a very agricultural region, and we'll have guys that'll come in, you know, on their gigantic pickups right off the farm and say, I'll take a bottle of the Bubble Bash Blush, please. Yeah. <laughs> and they always seem a little bit, you know, nervous about saying that. But it's, you know, really been fun for me to see how that wine has, like, I hear that every week. I walked in the irrigation place the other day, go pick up some drip line, and the guys, there was a guy there who was like, you guys make that pink wine. That's like my favorite wine. That's my favorite wine of all time. And I'm like, you know, it just warms my heart to see that, that that is a wine that has really captured people's imaginations and they just love it. Well, it's a good starter wine, if nothing else. I mean, if you find something you like, it's the right wine. That's what I always am told by winemakers. That is absolutely the case that like, I think that overall the industry tends to get too up in arms about like, oh, well, we got to be serious. We got to make just big reds and, you know, wines that maybe like speak to us as winemakers. And we spend a lot of time talking to ourselves as winemakers, you know, as an industry saying, this is what we want to do. And it's like, yeah, but there's still a ton of people out there that are still new to wine and still just barely getting started falling in love with wine and making that part of their lives. And so if you're going to be in the industry, you need to be able to not just speak to yourselves when it comes to winemaking. You need to be able to speak to a broader range of people. And Teresa, very much to her credit, she has always been very, very strong-minded about that. That it's like, because I think she knows that deep down, like if I had my way, I would make petite Syrah and nothing else. Because that's what I love. Fair, like, fair enough. <clears throat> I love petite Syrah. But uh, she's like, no, you know, we need to be doing some different sorts of things. And I think that, you know, she has been a great influence on me in that way. So, yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to stop and tell people where they are going to find you. So the best place to find us is, of course, at the tasting room. We sell almost all of our wine directly out of the tasting room. It's at uh, 15593 Sunny Slope Road, uh, just outside of Caldwell. It's a cool old fruit stand. It is the old Robinson Fruit Yeah, the old Robinson Fruit Ranch building. Yeah. And so, yeah, look for the old uh, Sonoma-style uh, fruit stand-looking building on the side of the road there, and that's us. We also do a little bit of stuff out in the marketplace in Boise. You know, you'll find us at like Albertsons and the Boise Co-op. 
And of course, you can order, order all of our wines online as well. So always what about socials? Uh, social, we do uh, Facebook, of course, at, at Fugition Sellers and Instagram at Fugition Sellers as well. And uh, just reach out to us anytime. Uh, there's typically one of us pretty close by to, uh, you know, we're, yeah, being gamers, we're always close to the computer, it seems like. So it's easy to reach out to us that way. And you'll probably I did be talking, not know that about you. Oh, yeah. You'll probably be talking to Tracer and myself in between uh, rounds on, uh, you know, World of Warcraft or Overwatch or something. So, yeah. <laughs> and you have a cool new building in process. It's been in process for a while. So we have been We have been future. Yeah. So coming in the near future, um, you know, we bought the estate vineyard property five years ago, and we're finally getting close to completion on that building. We moved our first dirt for that project in 2019. I like to joke it's a glorified tractor shed. It, it's and, a very pretty glorified tractor <laughs> shed. It still harkens back to uh, my agricultural background, and it is coming soon. We hope that it'll be open sometime this year, but uh, it all depends on when all the pieces fall in place for us. So, yeah. For sure. Well, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for um, having me. One of these days I'm going to meet Teresa, but we'll see when that happens. And um, we'll be back around for some more wine. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Martin.